Sorry, friends. Uh, for this episode, I just can't think of a witty two-line opener. Eh, why should I be able to? I'm just a schnook. Hi, friends. It's Sean, and thank you for listening to... Uh, what is it, chapter 33 now? Yeah, 33 of Autobiography of a Schnook. I'm recording this preamble on a very chilly Memorial Day weekend. And for me, it's a four-day weekend because my company gave us the Friday off for Mental Health Awareness Month. So I thought that was really cool. (laughs) And figured, hey, why not do some last-minute recording that I'm going to need to do in order to get this podcast out on time? And speaking of getting it out on time, I am only going to do one more episode, and then I'm going to take a break for the summer. I think that's what I'm going to do. I might change my mind. I might not take a break, but don't expect more episodes until around September-ish. Well, actually, there's going to be a June episode, but uh, after that, no more episodes probably till about September, because I need a little bit of a break. I have some other projects that I want to do, a couple that I'm really excited about that I'm uh, uh, not ready to talk about yet, but hey, that's uh, what's going on with me so far. Oh, you know what I found out? A source that I refer to a lot in this podcast, a semi-underground newspaper column called The Straight Dope by Cecil Adams. You know what I learned? That column stopped three years ago. The reason I didn't know is that I never went to the homepage of thestraightdope.com. I always went to Google and typed my information and then put site colon thestraightdope.com. But yeah, apparently what happened was when the Chicago Sun-Times bought out the Chicago Reader, something went on where they decided, well, we don't know if we want to do a question and answer column every week now. So I don't think the column is definitively permanently gone. I think they're so far in year three of rethinking, re-strategizing, restructuring. But man, I was I was shocked to see that. It, column hadn't existed in three years. The archives still exist, though. And by the way, you should get those books. There are five different books credited to Cecil Adams. There's The Straight Dope, More of the Straight Dope, Return of the Straight Dope, The Straight Dope Tells All, and Triumph of the Straight Dope. You can get them at just about any bookstore anywhere. It's not just a Chicago thing. It's based in Chicago, but you can find that anywhere. Uh, I got the last two books when I lived in New Jersey at uh, Borders or Barnes & Noble or something, but definitely check it out. It's great, great, great reading. It's just questions and answers, like just factual information and limitless categories, like uh, what are the real lyrics to Louie Louie? And he even answers the question, why do we drive on the parkway and park in the driveway? But definitely some fun stuff. Check it out. But Oh, yeah, and this uh, this is uh, something I just have to let out. Uh, this actually happened before the previous episode came out, but I was in such a rush that I didn't have time to talk about it. But my dad turned 81 this year on April 17th, and I went down to visit with the parents for that day. It was uh, just myself, my parents, and my brother and his daughter, and um, we just met at their house and hung out for a while, and my mom brought out a cake that she baked with uh, chocolate frosting. It wasn't from scratch. She always does uh, mixes. My mother is not a baker. 
And from what I understand, even bakers don't want to make a cake from scratch. Now, thing is, my dad is diabetic. He was diagnosed about 10 or 15 years ago, so he can't have sugar. But I'm eating this cake, and it's pretty good. I'm thinking, is this one of those situations in which just this one time sugar isn't going to kill him or something? So I'm enjoying it pretty good. And then after we all finished it, my mother said, okay, I have an announcement, everybody. That cake you just ate did not have any sugar in it. And we're all like, oh, wow, you're kidding. It's I, I never would have guessed that. Well, later on, for the next three or four days, I was experiencing some pretty, well, uh, let's just say unpleasant medical feelings. I texted my mom. I said, mom, what was the sweetener in that cake? It's, you know what it's doing to me? And she said, I don't know. Your father and I are fine. I texted my brother the next day and I said, hey, um, how are you doing? Uh, did that cake affect you in any way? He said, no, I'm fine. But I think artificial sweeteners don't react well to my daughter. So I texted my niece and I said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, I've been sick since yesterday. <sighs> but yeah. And uh, my wife, Lisa, she wasn't there, but uh, she researched it afterwards. And she said, well, here's a cake mix that's done by Pillsbury and it contains maltitol. Now, I'm not going to go into any descriptive stuff about maltitol, but if you're curious, look up maltitol and whatever it says could possibly happen to someone. Yeah, it happened to me. Uh, it was to the point where I called my doctor and asked what was going on. I said, is it safe to take this over the counter stuff I have at home? And she said, yeah, go ahead. And if it doesn't get any better, come on in. But no, I, I ended up being okay, thankfully. So yeah, my advice to you people out there is um, don't feed people sugar-free stuff without telling them first. Okay? Good. Good. Oh, speaking of sugar and stuff, this also happened since uh, Mother's Day weekend. Lisa flew out to New Jersey to spend a few days with her mother. So, that Friday morning, the Friday morning of Mother's Day weekend, it was about 6, 6.30ish in the morning, I drove Lisa to O'Hare Airport. And when I came back home, I opened the door and there is my beagle, Lola, standing on the dining room table with a big pile of flour all over it. And I whipped out my phone just to take a picture of it. And she jumped off the table and ran away. And of course, I frantically Googled my dog ate flour and uh, very quickly found that, uh, especially if it was only a small amount, the dog wouldn't really have any effect or anything from it. <laughs> So that was my first thing. But we had a bag of flour on the dining room table that we forgot about. And it had been there for like two weeks. And she never touched it when she was home alone until that day. And I was only gone for maybe 90 minutes. And uh, sometimes gets separation anxiety. So to uh, combat the separation anxiety, there's a, those of you who don't have dogs, I don't know if they do this for cats too, but there's this, uh, there's this really thick rubber container made by a company called Kong. And you fill the container up with various treats. Kong actually makes this like, uh, like spray cheese stuff that you can spray in there. And people recommend you freeze it for best results for longest lasting results, which we usually do. And, uh, I found that it takes Lola about 40 minutes to finish one of those things. So there was a 50 minute window when she must've hopped up. What she did was she pulled a chair out from under the table, hopped up on the chair and then hopped up on the table and opened up the flower. And 
it spilled on the table. You could, I'll, I'll share a, a picture of what happened. And she ran off the table and hopped into bed. So I had to change the bed sheets because there was flour all over them. Then I had to give her a bath. Then I had to clean up the floor because there was a trail of flour on the floor and change the bed sheets. So yeah, that was fun. My whole thought was, okay, I'll get back from O'Hare. It'll be about 730. I can start work early and knock off even earlier than the one o'clock I usually knock off on Fridays. No such luck, because I had to clean up the mess that the Beagle made. And I started work at 9 a.m., and I had to work till 1, so yeah. And then she got sick that night, and I had to take her to the emergency vet, but she's okay. They just gave her a couple of meds, and uh, they thought it was gastroenteritis, and uh, she got much better really quickly, thankfully. So yeah, that was uh, my Mother's Day weekend. (laughs) And yeah, uh, oh, oh, something else. Going back to episode 20, when I talked about my weird record collection, I mentioned an album that I found called The Singing Johnson Family. It's a self-titled album. And I couldn't find any information about that album or about the people or about the label. Well, I did find a couple of uh, classified ads uh, uh, advertising where they were going to be singing in some churches around Indianapolis, but that was it. Oh my God, I was so excited. I decided I was going to post a message on a Facebook page dedicated to Southport, Indiana, where they were from. And I posted a link to the entry I made on Discogs.com for the Singing Johnson family. Basically said, does anybody know anything about this record or the Johnsons or anything? Because, you know, I couldn't find anything. You know how hard it is to Google people with the last name Johnson and people whose first names are extremely common? Yeah, I got nowhere. Well, Harry Johnson, the father, his stepdaughter messaged me privately over Facebook and said, Harry Johnson was my stepfather for 45 years, and he was the greatest man in the world. And so I was so thrilled, and we started up a conversation back and forth, and I'm learning a lot more about these folks. I'll have to, oh man, I'll have to update you a little bit more later about that. But hey, I just, I'm just, I was just so thrilled to find out more about that really, really, really super obscure album. So that was cool. Or was it episode 21? It was either 20 or 21. I don't, I think it was 20. Hmm. Oh, oh yeah. One other thing, and I'll get on with the show. Um, like a lot of people tend to do, I did the uh, 23andMe thing. I just got my results recently. I was considering doing that for a while because not much is known about my dad's side of our family, and he doesn't like to talk about it for some reason. All he ever told me really was, I've only met a few of his relatives, and his parents died long before I was born. I think his mom died when he was five years old, so I didn't know my paternal grandparents. But the only other thing that I knew about that side of the family is my dad said, well, from my side of the family, you're English, Irish, and French, which I can totally understand. I mean, I have a British last name. Um, I don't know if I can go by my first name because my mom, who's not Irish, chose my Irish first name. <laughs> But my dad grew up in Kankakee, which is a very French part of the far, 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 far out Chicago suburbs. So that part I bought, but I didn't have anything to go by. So I did 23andMe also because I had reason to believe that on my dad's side of the family, there may have been black blood somewhere. And I know that my racist grandfather 
oh my goodness, I would have loved to have been able to tell him that, but he's long gone now, so I can't. But uh, and also, my uncle Ron apparently found out that he has a slight, tiny amount of Nigerian blood in him. I think another one of my uncles went to the doctor, and the doctor said, uh, do you have any African blood in you? Because you have keloids, which usually only happens to people with African blood. <laughs> but my other uncle, my uncle Ron, he got... Uh, a similar thing. It wasn't 23andMe, but it was another website that does that thing, and 0.9% Nigerian. Me, however, I'm 100% European. <laughs> so no African blood in me whatsoever, from what they could tell. My mother's side, it was dead-on accurate from what I thought all my life. My mother's side, 50% Russian, 50% Lithuanian. And the further breakdown shows that there's likely some Polish blood in me, too. And there might have been some history of Jewishness. Um, if, I don't know. If, I don't want to say Judaism because I don't didn't present that like a religion. So I, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, now my wife sent her sample in for 23andMe because she always suspected she has some kind of uh, a Jewish background in her somewhere, even though she was raised Catholic. <laughs> I have, well, she has Lithuanian blood. And after seeing that I have Lithuanian blood and that I might have Jewish blood going in there somewhere, she's also curious about that. As for my dad's side, it was pretty close. My dad says that I'm English, French, and Irish. 23andMe agreed with that. It also says there's a high likelihood that I have some German blood in me, too. So that was interesting. Basically, Western European from my dad, Eastern European from my mom. And if you never did that 23andMe thing, it, it gets really fascinating. Even with the entry-level uh, package that you get, uh, it tells you things about your likelihood that you like cilantro and uh, how likely you are to have a bald spot and the chances that you're left-handed. It goes into some really bizarre details and explains why some people think that cilantro tastes like soap. But I, I just found that fascinating. So, hey, that's I guess that's part of my autobiography. And speaking of cilantro, I, I love cilantro, even though my 23andMe report said that there's a chance I don't. But I love it. I figured that's a good enough transition to get into the first topic of today. And that's basically, I don't know how many people actually talk about this kind of thing, but I'm going to talk about my food memories. This topic was suggested by Lisa herself. I said, I'm really looking for a topic for a future episode. She said, talk about food. You got plenty of memorable experiences, which might explain my weight. I don't know. But yeah, let, let's talk about it. Let's talk food, shall we? When you go somewhere new or you're about to go somewhere new, what's something you typically ask someone who's been there or lives there bet you anything that at least part of the conversation is where can i go to eat and that's something we all share I mean, it's something we all have to do we have to eat to be alive and if we're going to do something that requires survival we might as well make the best of it make it good make it fun so i'm just like every other schnook in that regard i i want good food too my wife, Lisa, took offense that I wasn't going to talk about specifically the food that she cooks. Um, now, I don't know why I didn't plan specifically on discussing that. She's a great cook. She loves to cook, and she always loves tweaking her food and uh, 
reading cookbooks and watching Alton Brown and just listening to the tips from experts. The problem with being married to somebody who loves to cook and does it really well is that it's very hard to lose weight that way. The problem is I could do an entire podcast just about my wife's cooking. That's how good it is. So maybe that's why. I just want to focus on, say, going out and getting stuff rather than uh, making it yourself, especially because I really don't like to cook unless it involves a charcoal grill. I guess I can start with the general and get a little bit more specific, but uh, you know those Greek-owned dinery places that have a crap ton of stuff on the menu? I love those kinds of places. We had one in Joliet, where I lived between 1986 and 1998, and it was called Family Table, or as we usually called it, Family Stable. It was one of those places where the best time to go is 2 a.m., and you order saganaki. Uh, those of you who, few of you who don't know what saganaki is, it's that uh, Greek cheese that they set on fire before they put it on the table for you. Usually those places work by uh, giving you a choice of something a la carte or what they call dinner. Like say if you want a cheeseburger dinner, you get a cup of soup. You get the cheeseburger, the fries, and everything else that goes with a cheeseburger. And you get dessert with that as well. Actually, when I lived in Bourbonnet, there was a place in nearby Bradley called Bradley's Garden. And when we moved to Joliet, I swore that family table must have been owned by the same people who owned Bradley's Garden because it was pretty much exactly the same. But I, lo I loved those kind of places. And when I moved to New Jersey, I loved the diners with the shiny walls and everything because they were just like that. And they had so much good food there. There was one place in Red Bank, New Jersey called the Broadway Diner that I especially liked very much. Great mozzarella sticks. It was, it was perfectly cooked. You didn't have to worry about the uh, cheese being cooked so much that it was just too stringy or not enough that you take one bite and the entire cheese comes out of the breading. It was just perfect. The burgers were great. Uh, the desserts were fantastic. It was one of those places where you go in and there's one of those uh, uh, cake display things where it's several tiers and they rotate. Gotta love it. Uh, the owner of the Broadway Diner died a few years ago, sadly, but his daughter, who owns a restaurant in Asbury Park called Toast, reopened the Broadway Diner as another Toast restaurant. Good stuff. Definitely good stuff that I highly recommend. And the thing about New Jersey, and I'll talk about this more in the next episode about how after a few years, I was kind of tired of New Jersey, and I was ready to come back to Chicago. And uh, I lived in Jersey for eight years before I finally moved back. There are very, very, very few things that I miss about New Jersey. Some of it, in fact, maybe all of it, is the food that I knew there. Sadly, there are two things that I absolutely loved to pieces there. That when I go back to Jersey once a year, well, except for 2020, because there was this little thing called a pandemic that prevented me from going to New Jersey, there are two things there that going back I can't even enjoy anymore. There is a restaurant called Stuff Your Face. It is in New Brunswick, right outside of Rutgers. They had at least one other location, and that was in East Brunswick, not terribly far away. But their bag is Stromboli's. In fact, they claim to have invented Stromboli's. And if you don't know what a Stromboli is, um, it's kind of like, oh, it's hard to describe, kind of like a calzone in a way, but it's kind of tubular shaped. It's basically kind of a, uh, 
a cylinder sandwich, I guess, if you will. I, it's, it's hard to describe, but those things are really, really good. Stuff Your Face still exists as far as I know. It's called Stuff Your Face because, well, you will stuff your face when you go there. Take my advice, you get two sizes. There's the large bully and the huge bully. Do not get the huge unless you plan to share it with somebody. Or if you want to bring home the rest for later, of course. My favorite thing on the menu there was the shrimp bully. It was shrimp and mozzarella cheese and a garlic butter sauce. And the thing about the shrimp bully was I had to tell them to ease up on the garlic sauce because it was very garlicky, but it was so good. The shrimp stromboli was freaking amazing. I think it was 2012. Yeah, it was 2012 when I was in New York City attending the Hope Convention, Hackers on Planet Earth. The last day of the Hope Convention, I was pretty much done with everything I wanted to do, so I was going to head back to Jersey. Now, that day, Lisa had met up with her former college roommates, and they were at Stuff Your Face in New Brunswick. I texted her and I let her know, hey, I'm done at Hope. I'm going to head back to Penn Station. And she said, well, don't take the North Jersey coastline. Take Northeast Corridor instead and meet me in New Brunswick, and you can join us at Stuff Your Face. I was like, okay, sounds good. I hadn't been there in a while because we had moved to uh, Chicago six years earlier. So I met up with Lisa and her friends at Stuff Your Face. The shrimp bully was not on the menu. I was so upset. I wondered if they could possibly just still make it even though it wasn't on the menu. There are a lot of places you can go, and I'll get to at least one of them later, where if there's something that's not on the menu anymore, but they still have the actual ingredients, they can still probably make it for you and charge you the equivalent price. Not so with the shrimp bully. I was so upset. Oh, curse you, stuff your face. Bring back the shrimp bully. Please bring back the shrimp bully. The other thing that I can't go back to, at least not now, there was a restaurant in Ocean Grove, which was the small town that Lisa and I lived in. It was called Nagel's. It used to be a drugstore. It used to be an old-timey apothecary and cafe. Nagel's was actually closed down for a number of years before I moved there. And when they closed down, I think they sold all of their prescriptions to Rite Aid. So people who had prescriptions at Nagel's would have to go to Rite Aid. But in 2000, Nagel's reopened under new ownership, and it was just uh, a restaurant. It was basically comfort food, burgers, sandwiches, and ice cream. Lots of ice cream. And a very, it was a very busy ice cream line. If you wanted just ice cream, you just uh, line up at the window outside and in the summer, it was always busy. I guess it's a good thing we eventually moved out of there. <laughs> they had great burgers. There were a couple of times they had shrimp Caesar salad as specials, and those were freaking great. They were just great. They had wonderful soup. The mozzarella sticks were good. And they had this sandwich there called the Dagwood Club, which was a lot of different meat. And I think it had some cheese and tomato on it, too. I always got cheese on it. I always asked them for it. And they'd uh, serve it with chips. So good. And... To this day, Nagel's is the only place I've ever been where you could get a really good, a truly good vanilla Coke. The perfect balance of vanilla syrup and Coca-Cola. I would get that every time. I tried the Cherry Coke. The Cherry Coke was really good, too. But no, vanilla Coke there, oh, so good. Actual vanilla Coke, not the prepackaged vanilla Coke from the Coca-Cola company. But a couple of years ago, they closed down and said, yeah, we're going to reopen in... Uh, the spring. It was winter and they decided to close down for some reason. And uh, the story that I heard is that one of the co-owners got really, really sick. 
And the other co-owner was basically his caretaker. So they, he basically decided, well, I got to close the restaurant so that I can focus on taking care of my partner, making sure he gets better. Well, unfortunately, they wouldn't let anybody else run the restaurant. So the restaurant had to close down. Well, when the sick partner got better, the other partner, I think, got dementia or something. So now the partner who got better was the caretaker for the partner with dementia. And again, we're still having the problem of them not letting anybody run the restaurant. So it's been closed down for about two years now. And it's really a tragedy, both personally for them and for the people of Ocean Grove. It's such a great place to go. And nobody knows anything about the future, if they're ever going to reopen. And I really don't know how they can afford to keep paying rent on that place. There's no way it can be cheap. Hopefully something will happen to reopen it and bring it back the way that it was. But until then, there is one thing about New Jersey food that I absolutely love, and that's the submarine sandwiches. I am not talking about Jersey Mike's. I'm going to say this publicly, and I really don't care who gets upset by this. Jersey Mike's sucks. It is awful. There was one time when I was working for a a test prep company and I had to go to Somerset for a training. And on the way back, it was really late and I was really, really hungry. And I was dying for a really good New Jersey submarine sandwich. And I'd never heard of Jersey Mike's really, or at least I'd never been there. I didn't know it was this big chain. So I stopped in Jersey Mike's, got what I thought was going to be a good submarine. And when I ate it, I was like, what the hell is this crap? I could not eat. It was, it was horrible, horrible. What you want to do when you're in New Jersey and get a real Jersey sub, go to an independent place, especially if it has kind of an Italian-sounding name. Uh, Well, maybe not necessarily, because there was one place in Neptune, New Jersey, uh, where my mother-in-law lives. In fact, it was just like two blocks away from her called Dan's Deli. They had some amazing subs. I usually got a a turkey sub with cheddar and uh, mayo and lettuce, Uh, usually Places that serve submarine sandwiches in Jersey, they go by number. Like there's a number one, there's a number two. And of course, each number one, number two was different at different places. But usually the lower the number, the more common the sandwich was. Like say, number one might be roast beef and turkey with tomato, oil and vinegar, or as they call it here in Chicago, vinegar and oil, mayo, provolone cheese, and maybe onion or something. Of course, I'd always say no onion, please, because I do not do well with onion. (laughs) Unfortunately, Dan had a really bad accident that resulted in a traumatic brain injury, so he basically had to close the place down. I think it reopened under new ownership, though, and from what I hear, it's really good. When I worked in Red Bank, there was a place over there I think is still there called the Windward Deli, and it was so good. They had great sandwiches, great desserts, too. They had amazing brownies and cookies. I went there pretty often during my uh, tenure with the company that I worked for in Red Bank. There was another place that was in downtown Red Bank, still is, I believe, Elsie's Subs, and they've been around since the 40s. Now, here's something that I got to talk about here. Those of you who aren't familiar with New Jersey, there is a New Jersey delicacy that, depending on whom you talk to, is either called Taylor's Ham or Pork Roll. Pork Roll is really the generic term. Taylor's Ham is the brand name. But it's basically, well, I I don't want to say what it is because I might get it wrong and Jersey people will pounce on me over it. But in my personal opinion, though, it tastes like spam because it has kind of a pork flavoring and it is extremely salty. And from what I understand, it's not the healthiest meat in the world, but it is a delicacy out there. One day when I went to Elsie's Subs, I saw that they had a pork roll sub and I'd never had pork roll before. So I figured, well, now's the time to try it. 
And I told Lisa about it later and she hit the roof because apparently you are not supposed to have pork roll on a submarine sandwich. It is supposed to be on a Kaiser roll with optional cheddar cheese and ketchup. She called her mother and said, do you know what your son-in-law did today? And she told her about my experience having a pork roll submarine. Then she handed the phone to me and said, my mother wants to talk to you. And hand to God, friends, my mother-in-law sternly lectured me for about 10 minutes. It, I, sw I am not even kidding. I put the phone down and went over to Lisa and said, what the hell did you just do to me? She said, you deserve everything you're getting right now. And I walked back over to the phone and my mother-in-law was still in the middle of her lecture about how wrong I was. So next time she was over at our place, she brought over some Kaiser rolls and pork roll and ketchup and cheese. And I didn't like it. So there, <laughs> I do not like pork roll, period. I'm sorry, everybody. And, and uh, I think my friend Ferg listens. So Ferg, I apologize. <laughs> it's just not for me. Pork roll is not for me. Um, speaking of Jersey delicacies, yes, yeah, submarine sandwiches, they are, you go to Jersey, have a submarine sandwich at a deli at an independent mom and pop place. It's wonderful. Now, having said that, I do have a little bit of consolation living here in Chicago. There is an Italian deli just a couple of blocks away from me, Piatto Pronto, where they make sandwiches that are really, really good. They're very close to uh, the Jersey subs, actually. In fact, they have a new menu item. Well, new in that it's been there for, I think, a year or two called the Jersey Boy. And I got one for Lisa once, and she said, this is really good. And that's now her preferred sandwich if I go there for lunch and bring her back something. Also, in New Buffalo, Michigan, Lisa and I go there for weekend getaways once in a while. It's just an hour and a half away, just over the Michigan border. There is a place called Dooley's Lake House Pub. It changed ownership a couple of times, and I think it's going to be Dooley's for a while now because they do really good business. But they have New Jersey-style submarine sandwiches. Two owners before that, the place was actually run by somebody who was from New Jersey and basically brought the New Jersey-style sub over to New Buffalo, Michigan. When we first went there and tried one, Lisa took one bite out of it and said, This is authentic. The first time we ever went to Dooley's, which was, I think, in 2009, only back then it was called Bubba's, we were talking with the lady behind the counter, who I think is from Jersey, but she wasn't the owner. But she was telling us how somebody came in and asked for a sub sandwich with olives and peppers. And the owner told the lady, you want that crap on your sandwich? There's a subway a mile away. Every time we go to uh, New Buffalo, we go to uh, Dooley's Lake House Pub. I usually get a Hunter Club, which is a, uh, uh, I think it's roast beef and turkey and provolone. By the way, most places where you get authentic New Jersey subs, you don't get cheddar cheese. You get provolone. Uh, Swiss is also an option, but a lot of these places don't offer cheddar. I prefer cheddar over provolone, but provolone's good too, especially if once in a great while I have them double up on it for because provolone is extremely mellow. doesn't have a heck of a lot of flavor. But yeah, I cannot recommend Dooley's enough. They're a little bit pricey, but definitely worth it. Now, since I'm talking about sandwiches in New Jersey, there's one other sandwich that's kind of New Jersey related that I'll probably never experience again. It was one time and one time only. In 1999, August of 1999, in the previous episode, you heard about how Lisa and I would go to Beetlefest every year. So in 1999, when we were flying out to O'Hare to go to Beetlefest, 
we were able to upgrade to first class for like 50 bucks or something, if, if even that. Might have used frequent flyer miles. And the first class meal going there was this amazing shrimp sandwich. It was uh, shrimp and mozzarella. It was basically the shrimp bully that I was talking about, but in regular sandwich form. And it was amazing. Yeah, it's airline food, but it was still one of the most memorable sandwiches ever. Now, we were able to get that same first class upgrade on the way back, but that sandwich wasn't available. It was a chicken and mozzarella sandwich. It might have been uh, a chicken parm. I don't think it was chicken parm, no, but it was definitely chicken and mozzarella, and it wasn't quite the same. And that was on Continental Airlines. And since I'm on the subject of sandwiches, I might as well talk about sandwiches from my hometown of Joliet. Well, not really Joliet, but nearby Crest Hill. If you say Joliet about this place, no one's going to blink an eye, especially because on the You Know You're From Joliet If Facebook group, this place comes up all the time. It's called Marichka's. Their specialty is poor boys. Not po' boys, but poor boys. Their poor boy sandwiches are basically on Italian-style long bread with garlic butterine sauce. You have a choice of either chicken, fried chicken, or steak. And they're all freaking good. They're all amazing. And they put uh, dill pickle on it, I believe, as well. Now, here's the thing about Marichka's. That is a legendary Joliet area restaurant. It's a rite of passage to go there at least once in your life. I mentioned earlier we moved to Joliet in 1986. I had never actually been to Marichka's until 2015. And I'll tell you why. I think my parents went to Marichka's once and had a bad experience. And because of my parents' strict standards, especially my mother's, I'm guessing that what happened was they accidentally got double-charged for a drink, or they were seated under a ceiling fan or something. And the way my parents operated, one mistake, they never go back to that restaurant ever again. So they basically had a boycott on Marishka's since practically the day we moved to Joliet. Homecoming 1988, freshman year of high school. It was a double date. Everybody wanted to go to Marichka's. My parents said, so where are you going for dinner? And I said, Marichka's. My mother made some phone calls. And then she said, you're not going to Marichka's now. I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> Junior year of high school. Again, homecoming. A double date. Everybody wanted to go to Marichka's. My mother made some phone calls. You're not going to Marichka's now. And I am not making that up. My mother actually stepped in on two different homecoming dates and put a kibosh on our plans to go to Marishka's. And I told Lisa about that. I told her that story. And she said, you know, sometime when we're down there, let's go there just to see what the deal is and just to spite your parents too. So 2015, we went and we freaking loved the sandwiches there. We loved the poor boys. They were fantastic. And the service was great and it was very busy, very busy, which tells me that, hey, lots of people like the place. And very friendly, very friendly. We highly enjoyed it. I eventually did tell my parents that uh, we went to Marishka's. And for all my mother did, that she literally made phone calls to make sure that I would not go to Marishka's. She said, oh, really? You like that stuff? Eh, it's just not my thing. It's not for everybody. Hmm. Interesting. My dad said, you know, Marishka's is pretty good. The thing is, you got to ask them to cut down on that garlic butterine sauce. Sometimes they put too much on it. I said, Dad, that's not what you said in 1986. <laughs> but, oh well. 
I've been to Mariska's several times, including the day we adopted our beagle Lola. We went there after we signed the papers. Now, having said that, I've had poor boys at Mariska's, and I've also been blessed enough to go to New Orleans a couple of times and have po' boys down there. Wow. Just freaking wow. I don't remember if I ever mentioned it in this podcast before, but I always tell people that if you are looking to lose weight, do not go to New Orleans. That is probably the worst place in this country to go if you are watching your weight, because the food there is so bloody amazing, including my favorite thing that I've ever had there, the shrimp carbonara po' boy at Desire which was at the Hotel Sinesta, where we stayed a couple of times, and still there, actually. I've had several po' boys in New Orleans, and they were all wonderful. Here's how good they are. I normally don't like tomato slices. Too bitey for me, too acidic for me. The po' boys in New Orleans, I leave the tomato slices on, and it's still delicious. So, that's how good they are down there. I've had New Orleans-style po' boys outside of New Orleans, and they're good, but they're just missing something. But in New Orleans, they're amazing. But shrimp carbonara, you had uh, shrimp, of course, with uh, bacon bits all over it and a a sauce that was just out of this world. I took a picture of the second one I had there because we went to that uh, restaurant twice the last time we were in New Orleans. And I had to get it again. I had to get the shrimp carbonara again. It was just so freaking amazing. But really, I have a feeling that if you go to New Orleans, no matter where you go, you are going to have some of the best food you ever had in your life, especially if you like seafood. Yeah, they do have Subway and McDonald's and Popeye's, but why would you go for that crap when you have much better stuff everywhere else? I guess next in our travels that I should talk about, uh, we like to go to the West Coast a lot, Lisa and I. We've been to California several times. We're going there at least two more times this year. So I'll tell you about some of the things I can recall in uh, California. Of course, if you listened to the previous episode, you heard me basically drool over Mike's Taco Club and Hodad's, both in Ocean Beach. And you'll probably hear me do that some more. Oh, I, I cannot emphasize how amazing the shakes are at Hodad's. The burgers are amazing, too. Again, do not get to double size anything unless you're sharing it or you want some leftovers for later. Mike's Taco Club, best burritos I've ever had, ever. In 2016, we spent a few days in Hollywood. It was the first time I'd ever been to Los Angeles. I wasn't expecting much, and just things that I heard about Los Angeles, it's like, yeah, I probably won't like it, but I still got to go there. I got to tell you, I had a wonderful time, and I really can't wait to go back to L.A. sometime. There were a couple of places we went to. When we were in L.A., first of all, there was Bob's Big Boy in Burbank, actually. Lisa had wanted to check it out because there were hardly any Bob's Big Boys anywhere. That might even be the only one left, if uh, I'm not mistaken. But she wanted to see what it was like. Well, my first impression was the bathroom. I had to use the bathroom really bad, so as soon as we got in there, I used the bathroom. The bathroom was a total wreck. It was disgusting. And I was not looking forward to the meal. I was telling Lisa, I don't think I want to eat here. I reported the terrible bathroom to all the staff there, anybody who listened to me. She's like, look, I'm, I'm really super hungry. Let's just eat here. So I said, okay, fine. We, we will eat here. And the place is basically your typical dinery food, really. And um, I don't remember what I ordered for dessert. It might have been a Sunday. But I remember sitting there thinking, 
going to that bathroom and possibly exiting it with 18 new diseases was so worth it for this Sunday. It's not like it was anything special. It didn't do anything anybody else wouldn't do to a Sunday, but it was just perfect. I don't know how else to describe it. It was one of the best Sundays I ever had. While we were in LA, we decided we had to visit Paradise Cove, partly because we're Beach Boys fans, and at least three Beach Boys album covers were photographed at Paradise Cove, most notably their first album, Surf and Safari. In fact, if you go to Paradise Cove now, there is a sign telling you where that photo shoot happened. It says something like, this album cover shoot happened right here. I took a picture of it and I will share it with you in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. But Paradise Cove is a beautiful place. It's kind of smallish. It's in Malibu. Parking, I got to tell you right now, is extremely expensive. It's like 30 bucks. But if you order something from the cafe there, they knock the parking down to, I think, $4 or something like that. And your parking's good for, I think, three hours. And it is a very busy place. The first time we were there, we sat outside. And let me tell you, having lunch outside at the Paradise Cove Beach Cafe is an amazing experience. Just, it doesn't matter what you eat or drink. Just sitting there with your toes in the sand. Oh my God, it is so wonderful. I highly recommend it to anybody who's anywhere near Los Angeles at any point. Go to the Paradise Cove Beach Cafe and possibly order the best damn soup that I've ever had in my life. The clam chowder. Wow. Oh my God, I cannot wait to go. We're going back to Paradise Cove this summer, actually, and I'm going to chow down on that clam chowder. It comes in a bread bowl. I'm, I'm a sucker for bread bowl soups, for one thing. And the broth is just absolutely amazing. And not only do they give you the bread bowl, but they also give you the pan that the soup comes in so you can reload. And my advice, if you're getting the clam chowder, do not get any other food because they give you a lot. And they also have these amazing adult beverages that, unfortunately, I'm not really allowed to order because I'm the one who drives. <laughs> but I did get a sip of this. Oh, God, I don't know what it was, but it comes served to you in a watermelon, a tiny bit of hers with me. And it was, oh, so good. So good. And something that I love about the Paradise Cove Beach Cafe is, you know how they're kind of getting away from using plastic straws? What they do at the Paradise Cove Cafe they actually make their straws out of pasta, so they're still good and solid, and they're edible. And I think that is a brilliant, brilliant idea. Now, moving up north, San Francisco. We've been to San Francisco many times, and we're going there this summer. We're going to take a road trip from San Francisco down to San Diego. There's a lot of good food in San Francisco, but very little of it, would I say, is just so life-changing. But there is one place that Lisa told me that I absolutely must mention in this segment, and it's called Max's at the Opera. It's specifically called at the Opera because it's not far away from the Opera House over in San Francisco. They used to have several other locations. There was one in the Financial District. There was another one somewhere else that I don't remember, but I think they only have the one location now. And one thing about Max's is uh, they made a big deal about demonstrating their mustards before they took your order. Because they have like five or six different mustards. And there used to be a sign up at Max's that says, if we don't tell you about the mustard before we take your order, you get a free slice of Niagara Falls cake. Ladies and gentlemen, 
whether or not that slice is free, you want that Niagara Falls cake. I'm telling you, you want it. Just order it, period. Don't wait for them to screw up. Just order it. It's good, rich chocolate with vanilla frosting and, ooh, just, it's it's just so perfect. It's a multi-layer cake, I believe. Oh my God, it is so good. Lisa always insists on going to Max's anytime we're in San Francisco. Uh, one thing that she would order all the time was mojito steak. Now, the thing about mojito steak, though, is that's not on the menu anymore for some reason. I think that was their specialty, actually. That was what they were always plugging. But one day, a few years ago, we went and they did not have mojito steak on the menu. That was the one thing Lisa wanted. She asked about that and uh, the waiter said, we can make that for you. So yeah, that's one place where even though something was no longer on the menu, they were able to come through for us. Now, overall, California, there's one place that I got to talk about that is always a good place to go, In-N-Out Burger. I heard from some people, yeah, In-N-Out's overrated. One thing that they usually have in common is that they're from California. They're probably so sick of it. That's probably why they say it. Now, is In-N-Out the best burger in the world? No. Is it a great burger? Yes. And the thing that we love about In-N-Out, there are a lot of things we love about In-N-Out. First of all, the stuff at In-N-Out is fresh. It's absolutely fresh. It's not frozen. In fact, that's the reason that In-N-Out is pretty much limited to just the West Coast, because they have to be within, I think, a five or six hour drive of their distributor's locations. If they were any further, they would have to freeze their stuff, which they do not want to do. But at In-N-Out, you're going to get some fresh burgers, fresh lettuce, fresh fries. In fact, not only are the fries fresh, but you can actually see the workers load the fry cutter with fresh potatoes. So you know you are an eyeball witness to the freshness there. And every time I'm there, I try to count the number of people working behind the counter in the kitchen. And I give up when I reach 10 because it's just too ridiculous trying to count all those people. So many people out there working and you can see them working their butts off. The food is relatively cheap, too. Even in San Francisco, where the location is um, Fisherman's Wharf, one of the most touristy places in the country, prices are amazingly not sky high at the Fisherman's Wharf location. And I'm trying to do the math, and I'm just going to give up, because all these people working at in and out at any given time, again, I give up counting at 10. Fresh food, low prices, and manager's starting pay? is more than what I make as a software engineer. They pay their frontline workers a living wage. One more thing I got to say about In-N-Out is their menu is very simple. It's like hamburger, cheeseburger, double hamburger, double cheeseburger, fries, drinks, and that's it. They do have what they call the secret menu, but it's not really so secret because everybody knows about it. Like they can make your burger or fries animal style, which involves basically making a sauce out of mustard and fried onion and stuff. I don't remember what it is. I never get animal style because, again, I have a problem with onion. And they can make you a root beer float because they have root beer and they have ice cream, even though root beer float is not part of the menu. Basically, anything they have ingredients for, they can make it for you. There's supposed to be a super secret menu, I think, as well, but I I don't really know much about that. I never order from the secret menu because, hey, I'm very happy with the standard menu. But yeah, when Lisa and I are in California, we try to hit up in and out There's an In-N-Out in Vegas. Actually, there are at least two In-N-Outs in Vegas, including one on the Strip. When we're in Vegas, we haven't been there. Oh, wow. We haven't been there since 2017. Wow. Uh, We always hit up at least one Gordon Ramsay restaurant. 
here's the thing. At least in America, you watch Gordon Ramsay on TV and you see him scream like a freaking maniac. Well, here's the deal, folks. He has several Michelin stars. The man knows what he's talking about. There is a reason he's screaming at people, although uh, uh, most people, including myself, think that that reason is that uh, Fox is telling him to scream at people because you notice that on his British TV shows, he usually doesn't raise his voice very much. But (laughs) my friends, if you see a Gordon Ramsay restaurant where you happen to be, go there, go there, just shut up and go, shut up and go. Take out a second mortgage if you have to. Uh, I That's actually not fair to say because a lot of his restaurants are very inexpensive, especially he has a, uh, oh, there's a place he recently opened up in 2017 just by the High Roller, right by the Flamingo, and it's basically simple stuff like uh, sandwiches and fries. That place is, even for the strip, it's inexpensive. And it's wonderful. Anything with Gordon Ramsay's name on it in Vegas, you are going to have an amazing meal. At his restaurant over at Caesar's Palace, Gordon Ramsay Pub and Grill, it is a full-service restaurant. It's called an Authentic English Pub. Last time we were in Vegas, we went to Gordon Ramsay Pub and Grill at Caesar's because we were seeing the Who at Caesar's. All we ordered was the short rib kettle chip nachos. Holy God. Just order that and nothing else. You'll have a lot of it, and it's amazing. It is so amazing. I think one time we also had the truffle spinach and artichoke dip, and it was also just freaking amazing. One of his other restaurants is called Gordon Ramsay Burger. When we first went there, it was simply called Burger, B-U-R-G-R, and the G-R was in a different color because Gordon Ramsay's initials, but I guess he renamed it simply because it was just easier to call it just Gordon Ramsay Burger, spelled B-U-R-G-E-R. Let me tell you, here in Chicago, we do not have a shortage at all of places to get amazing burgers. Some of the best burgers you've ever had are in Chicago. Let me tell you, Gordon Ramsay Burger, the burgers are even better. Just so good there. Uh, That's at Planet Hollywood, in case I didn't mention that. But last time we went to Gordon Ramsay Burger... I had what was called the Patriot Burger. I don't remember what was on it, though, but it was just amazing. I'm looking at the menu right now, and it doesn't look like it's on the menu anymore. But I do remember it had some kind of jelly or jam. It was grape jelly or strawberry jelly or something. I was kind of iffy about ordering that, but everything else that was on the burger I really liked. I figured, why the heck not? I'll try it. So my goodness, it was the best burger I ever had. Such a perfect blend of sweet and savory. Uh, But again, you go there and you're going to have just the most amazing burger that you've ever had. Now, again, Gordon Ramsay Burger is not an expensive place. We have not been to any of his expensive places yet. We haven't been to Gordon Ramsay Steak. Oh, the uh, place on the strip that we like that was... Very inexpensive and very simple. Gordon Ramsay Fish and Chips. That's a great place. We've not been to Gordon Ramsay Steak. We haven't been to the Hell's Kitchen restaurant. But we plan to visit one of those sometime just to splurge. But yeah, trust me. The Gordon Ramsay places are just absolutely amazing. If I move a little bit further east, Austin, Texas. Now, Austin is the second worst place to visit. As far as I'm concerned, in this country... If you are trying to watch your weight in my notes for this episode under Austin, 
I simply say anything because no matter where you go in Austin, it is going to be so freaking delicious. Most of the places, if not all the places we went to are Tex-Mex. One place that Lisa wanted me to mention, there's a food truck called Torchies. And yeah, some amazing tacos there. But one thing else that I should mention, because, well, Lisa wanted me to, is that fajitas were invented in Austin at the Hyatt Regency in Austin. And that's where we stayed when we were in Austin. Uh, It's a different hotel. The original Hyatt Regency there was demolished and rebuilt. But you can still go to that Hyatt Regency and get fajitas, and they're just freaking amazing. Go anywhere in Austin, especially if you like Tex-Mex. Uh, one place you went to, I believe, was called the Iron Cactus, and I I just can't really single anything out. It's just all amazing food down there in Austin. Second worst place to be in the country if you're watching your weight. But let's say you want to leave the country. Well, I have only been to two other countries, and they were both in North America, Bermuda and Canada, specifically Toronto. And the one food place that I remember that sticks out in my mind is Franz. And I think it's a chain, and I think there might be a couple of Franz locations in the United States, too. But it's another one of those dinery places. And there are two things there that really stuck out for me. Number one, they make shakes with Bailey's Irish Cream. It is so hard to find a place that does that. I don't know why, but I don't remember if I ever said so in this podcast, but ladies and gentlemen, if you do not believe that God loves you, then you have not had Bailey's Irish Cream. It is a wonderful drink. Maybe it's because I'm Irish. I don't know. But there are shakes with Bailey's. Oh, good Lord. Oh, I just, I want to fly there just for that. Just for that. And also at Franz, that was the first time I ever had poutine. Lisa and I ordered some poutine there. Uh, Those of you who don't know what poutine is, it's French fries with gravy and cheese curds, usually I think mozzarella, and I think bacon bits or pulled beef or something. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. If you, my experience is at least in Chicago, if you get poutine from somewhere in the United States, it's expensive. It's like 18 bucks. In Toronto, it was like three or four dollars. So that was another thing I loved about eating at Franz in Toronto. The poutine was cheap and delicious. Now, coming back to America here, I got to talk more about my dining experiences here in my favorite city in the planet, my home. Starting off with things that I'll probably never get to have again, unfortunately, or at least not now. In my neighborhood, there is a restaurant called Hamburger Mary's. I do believe there are several other Hamburger Marys still around. Like, there's one in the Castro District of San Francisco. The food, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. It's mostly burgers. They do make adult milkshakes, but uh, not really Bailey's-centric necessarily. In fact, I think the week after we moved to Chicago, I was out walking around, and I was just super hungry. I was in the mood for a burger, and I just passed somebody on the street. I said, hey, excuse me, can you recommend a place to get a good burger I can take home? And he said, yeah, Hamburger Mary's, you can't go wrong there. So I went there, and yeah, it was great. It was absolutely great. They have great seasoned fries. Uh, They have seasoned tater tots that they call tatas. And so many of the menu items are named after a lot of gay icons, really. And your bill is presented to you in a woman's stiletto shoe. So that's uh, an interesting little touch there. But they have such good food. 
They had to close down this year, unfortunately. They had some uh, issues with the landlord, so they were planning to not renew their lease. They were looking to move, but when COVID hit, they decided, yeah, we're just going to call it quits now. We'll be back someday, somewhere, so keep an eye out. So, One thing that I have to mention, though, they had... I'm not much for chicken sandwiches. I'm, I'm really not. I like my chicken either with a waffle or standalone. But several years ago, when there was one of those big outbursts about uh, how Chick-fil-A was donating to anti-gay organizations and things, Hamburger Mary's came out with the, I believe they called it the hate-free chicken sandwich. I'm just going to say right now, I never liked Chick-fil-A. It has nothing to do with uh, them being anti-anybody. It's just that I didn't know what the big deal was. I had Chick-fil-A in three different states, and they all were pretty much the same. It was basically balls of grease that visually resembled food. I didn't know what the big deal was. But I ordered the hate-free chicken sandwich when Hamburger Mary's offered it because most, if not all, the money from the sales were going to various charities. So I figured that'd be a good thing to order. Again, I'm not one for chicken sandwiches, but oh my God, it was simply amazing. They had great barbecue sauce on it. The moisture level on it was absolutely perfect. Not too dry, not too wet. And I was so sad when they eventually took it off the menu. It was only a limited time offering. We kept asking for it every time we went back, just in hopes that uh, that they would bring it back or at least make it for us. But nah, they didn't. Another place that's gone, Jerry's Sandwiches. Well, it's not so much gone as they closed it and reopened it with a, uh, a Greek Mediterranean theme, which we're wondering why they did that, because there were two other Mediterranean-themed restaurants nearby. We haven't been there since. They do have another location not far from the Old Town School of Folk Music, just two and a half miles away from us. Unfortunately, though, Jerry's Sandwiches there, they don't have the sandwich that I always wanted, which was called the Stoner. It was a mac and cheese and bacon sandwich with slice of cheddar cheese on it, and it came with potato chips, so I guess that's why they call it a stoner, like what you would likely be chowing down on if you were stoned, but I don't know. <laughs> but the thing I loved most about Jerry's sandwiches was for the longest time, they had the most amazing beer cheese. It was cold beer cheese, and they would serve it to you with slices of pita bread, soft pretzel chunks hard pretzels, and I think maybe nachos. I don't remember what else. But they eventually took it off the menu, and I asked the uh, manager why they did that. And the lady told me, well, the thing is, the beer cheese was always hit or miss because we changed up the beer every month or so, and different beers produced different results. We didn't always get good beer cheese, so we just decided to take it off the menu. And I was so upset, and the lady said, well, give me your email address, and I'll give you the recipe. Well, it's been three years, and I still don't have the recipe, unfortunately. Uh, Jerry's, if you're listening, I'm still waiting for that recipe. Or just put it on the menu. Put it on the menu. And I also have to give some props to Lisa and my favorite restaurants. Lisa's favorite restaurant is a place called Heaven on Seven. So-called because it is located on the seventh floor. I don't remember the name of the building, but it's on Wabash downtown. They used to have another location on Grand Avenue downtown, but they closed that location. Um, from what I read, there were some tax problems that the owner was going through, but there's still a location downtown. Actually, the, uh, the main location downtown technically is not open right now because of COVID, but uh, Jimmy Bonos, who owns the restaurant, his son runs another restaurant out of the building where my office is, actually, 
And right now, Jimmy is using that space for his own restaurant for takeout service. So you can order Heaven on 7 takeout from his son's restaurant. The thing about Heaven on 7 is it's New Orleans-style food, but with an Italian twist to it. And it's all amazing. They have great pastas, great fried shrimp, amazing fried shrimp, and wonderful shrimp bisque and crab bisque. Now, if you go to Heaven on 7, the staffers wear t-shirts that say, Everybody who comes back from heaven says the same thing. Order the gumbo. And they are not kidding. Order the freaking gumbo. I believe it is a filet-based gumbo, but order it. It is so amazing. Now, if you go to Heaven on 7, which I hope reopens soon, if you go to Heaven on 7, you will see that the walls are lined with thousands of different bottles of hot sauce. I don't think you can actually use those bottles of hot sauce to season your food. I think those are simply for decoration, but they do have a huge variety of hot sauce for your food. And if you don't like what's at your table, you could probably look at another table and they might have a hot sauce that you like. My personal favorite restaurant, the Weber Grill Restaurant on State and Grand. And it's perfectly located because right underneath there is a red line stop. I live on the red line, so I can take the red line to State and Grand, hop out, and I'm at the Weber Grill restaurant. It is so called because everything is cooked on a Weber grill, and let me tell you, everything there is quite amazing. The burgers are great, the Caesar salad, the salmon, the... St- I, I've been going to Weber Grill restaurant for 20 years, and I just now tried the steak there. Holy good God almighty. Go to Weber Grill Restaurant. They also have locations in the suburbs. There's one in Schaumburg, Illinois by the Woodfield Mall. There's one in Lombard, Illinois. There's one in downtown Indianapolis. And there's one in a nearby St. Louis suburb. I've been to all five, and they're all wonderful. My favorite location is actually the Schaumburg location. It's such a nice place. They all have equally amazing food, but the Schaumburg location, I think, is the nicest. And together as a couple, there's one place we absolutely love. Well, we both love Weber Grill Restaurant in Heaven on 7, but a place that we can't get enough of, Luella's Southern Kitchen in Lincoln Square on Lincoln Avenue. Best chicken and waffle ever, ever. And they also have uh, Nashville Hot Chicken and Waffle, which, yeah, I know, a lot of spicy food people say, oh, Nashville Hot's not hot, but it's still really good. They have amazing Southern-style sweet tea, and their unsweetened tea is really good, too, as well. Some of the best mac and cheese I ever had. Anything you order at Luella's is going to be quite amazing. It's a black-owned business. It's Southern-style food, and oh, such a great place. You go in there, you're going to hear some Motown music or Sam Cooke or Aretha Franklin. Such a wonderful place. I love them so much. Can't get enough of them. Unfortunately, if I do get enough of them, that means that I weigh more. But having said that, just in general, you can't go wrong with food here in Chicago. Chicago, I think, is the third worst place in the country to be if you're trying to watch your weight because the food is so good here. We have our own delicacies here. You may have heard of Chicago-style pizza. There are two different Chicago styles. Of course, there's deep dish pizza. Uh, A lot of old-timey Chicago people insist that deep dish pizza is wrong, and it's tourist food, and it's teenager food. Well, don't listen to them. It's really good. It's really worth it. If it were tourist food, then... Tell me why all the mom-and-pop places in the residential neighborhoods also offer it. 
These old-timey people insist that true Chicago-style pizza is thin-crust tavern cut. And by tavern cut, they mean cut in rows and columns, as opposed to wedges. The reason it's called tavern-style, apparently, is that... It's made that way so that if you're getting off work, you can go to the tavern with your coworkers just to have a quick bite to eat. Uh, the tavern-style cut yields smaller pieces, so you can have just a couple of slices and not ruin your dinner when you get home. So pick your poison, thin crust or deep dish. Those are both Chicago-style. The thin crust isn't the same as the crap you get in New York that you have to fold. I don't like tavern-style pizza myself either, but... It's different from your New York Thin Slice or or even New Haven Thin Slice. Oh, speaking of New Haven, you can get really amazing New Haven pizza at a place called Peace in uh, Wicker Park, which is on the near north side of the city. And the place is co-owned by Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. Amazing pizza there. Can't go wrong. I recommend eating it there if you can rather than taking it out. Because having it fresh out of the oven is quite an amazing experience. They also have a partnership with another place called Honey Butter Fried Chicken, which is fried chicken with honey butter on it. And they usually have some kind of specialty pizza with honey butter fried chicken on it. I highly recommend it. Really delicious. And I got to tell you this, even though I love Chicago pizza and I am such a city snob, I think my favorite pizza that I've had was actually at Woodfire in West Dundee which is about 25 miles northwest of Chicago. Go up 90 and get off on either on Route 25 or Route 39 and go into downtown West Dundee. It's at the corner of Main Street and 2nd, and it is so good. They use fresh mozzarella on their pizza as opposed to shredded mozzarella, and I think that makes all the difference in the world. But going back to the city, of course, the other big delicacy that we're known for in Chicago Chicago-style hot dogs. Vienna beef is the go-to hot dog in this town. There are a lot of hot dog places in the neighborhoods. They have Vienna beef or Red Hot Chicago is the other one. I think Red Hot Chicago was actually started by a disgruntled Vienna beef employee. I know I've talked about the Chicago-style hot dog before in this podcast, but a Chicago-style hot dog is on a poppy seed bun and it has the following toppings, and not necessarily in this order. I don't remember the required order. Mustard, relish, chopped onion, optional sport pepper, optional dill pickle spear, and tomato slices. I have never had a Chicago hot dog because I cannot do onions and I don't eat peppers. I just, I can't stomach the thought of putting peppers in my mouth because as I said before, peppers look like snot. And of course, in Chicago, we are famous for insisting that ketchup does not belong on a hot dog. Well, I know I've mentioned this before in earlier episodes, but nowhere where the hot dog is king, including New York and Kansas City and L.A., none of those places want ketchup on a hot dog. It's just that I think in Chicago, we are the loudest about it. There is a famous little sign that a lot of hot dog vendors have in Chicago that says something like, It is a crime against your taste buds to put ketchup on a hot dog within the city limits of Chicago. I've seen that same sign at a Nathan's place in New York. And I know I've said this before, Nathan's hot dogs are really good. Vienna beef is much better, though. But check it out. Go to a Vienna beef place someday and try a hot dog. A good Vienna beef hot dog grilled with a char. 
So good. Oh, the snap of the casing is such a, such a great feeling. I usually just put mustard, relish, and celery salt on it. By the way, celery salt is also one of the required ingredients in a Chicago-style hot dog. And it's always a good experience. And by the way, the reason that you don't want ketchup on a hot dog, well, number one, assuming you're going all-out Chicago-style, you already got tomato slices, so you don't need ketchup. And also, the scientific reason for not putting ketchup on the hot dog is... Ketchup is loaded with ingredients, particularly the sugar, that kills the beef flavor of the hot dog. And that's one reason that a lot of people had ketchup on their hot dogs when they were little kids, because little kids eat anything with ketchup on it. But you're not supposed to put ketchup on a hot dog. You're also not supposed to put French's brand mustard on a hot dog, because that also has ingredients that kill the beef flavor. Like I think turmeric, I think it has too much of that. I personally also recommend not using Heinz mustard on a hot dog because Heinz is overloaded with vinegar. I like Heinz mustard and French's mustard personally, but not on a hot dog. You want something mellower like, say, Plockman's mustard. Uh, those kind of off-the-beaten-path mustards are mellower and do more to enhance the beef flavor. So go with one of those. Uh, Chicago style dictates specifically yellow mustard, but I don't think anybody's going to yell at you for putting brown mustard on a hot dog. Personally, though, I've lately been favoring Polish over hot dogs because they're a little bit more flavorful and they're just as good. Same rules apply, mustard instead of ketchup, and you'll have a really good hot dog. For dessert, check out Margie's Candies. Amazing Sundays, there's a Margie's in Bucktown on the near north side, right off of Western, I believe. And there's also one, I believe it's considered, is it, it's either North Center or Lincoln Square on the far north side on Montrose, I believe, right by the Brown Line. Both places equally good. The one further north is a little bit cleaner. They give you Sundays in these giant shells. So make sure you go there pretty freaking hungry. They give you the container of hot fudge or caramel or whatever you're going to put on it. And it's just so good. They have a wide variety of ice creams, a wide variety of toppings. And rumor has it that the Beatles actually went to Margie's one night when they were performing in Chicago. Of course, there are no pictures to prove it. And there's a lot of question as to whether that was actually true. Personally, I don't think it was true, but I'm open to believe that it actually did happen. But that's basically my experience in food. If you'd like to share your recommendations, autobio at schnookpodcast.com. Speaking of Chicago-style hot dogs, there's one thing I wanted to mention earlier in the episode, something that I did recently is uh, my friend Jim, who's also my co-host on Pie Factory Podcast, he wanted to check out the bike trail up here, the Lakefront Trail. So we met up at my place, which is just a few blocks away from where the trail begins, and we rode the trail down to McCormick Place and back, and we stopped off for lunch. I think Jim had a Chicago-style hot dog, and he commented that he had had a Chicago-style hot dog many times, but never actually in Chicago. So uh, that was a good time, and I had a Polish sausage because <laughs> I've been favoring those over hot dogs lately. And I gotta say, I had a really amazing time, so a big thanks to Jim for uh, coming up and uh, inviting me along, because I'd ridden that trail many, many, many times. I used to take it to work all the time until I started working from home because of, well, the pandemic. <laughs> and it's the first time I truly, truly enjoyed it. 
because, well, for one thing, I wasn't in a rush. We were both kind of going at a leisurely pace and taking in the sights. And Jim just pointing out all such great sights along the way, like how majestic it is to be riding a bike and being surrounded by these tall buildings. And you see the lake over to your left. We took a ride over to Navy Pier and just took in some amazing views, some great views off the museum campus. And it was the first time I ever truly, truly enjoyed the trail. I didn't let the lakefront lances, as we call these people, uh, get on my nerves. Uh, Jim said that he could easily see why motorists hate cyclists, because as he says, 90% of us are a-holes. <laughs> that was just such a good time. So big thank you to Jim. Big shout out. I totally neglected to mention that earlier, but hey, I'm mentioning it now. And I didn't want to forget that. And I also don't want to forget to talk about, well, music, of course. I can't let an episode go by without a music for schnooks segment. And this time, I'm going to talk about an observation I made about three albums that came out in 1967 and how they just seem to be related. Listen on, my friends. Fall of 1991, possibly as early as summer, actually, I was hanging out with my friend Andrew in his Plainfield home. Senior year of high school. Now, before I get into the details of this particular day, Here's an observation I've made. When you're in high school, you'll find yourself getting into one of the following classic rock bands. The Doors, Pink Floyd, or Led Zeppelin. If you listen to this podcast regularly, by now you know that I most definitely was into The Doors, still am to this day. Waiting with bated breath. Oh, by the way. <laughs> bated breath. B-A-T-E-D. Not B-A-I-T-E-D. Uh, anyway, uh, waiting with bated breath for the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of the L.A. Woman album. I even listened to the post-Morrison doors. Andrew and I were in the midst of learning to play Stairway to Heaven with another friend for a homecoming week event, so I guess I was listening to at least some Led Zeppelin. Try as I might, though, I just couldn't dig Zeppelin. Well, I like, nay, love their first two albums, but after that, nah, -uh. so useless, especially the fourth album, um, whose title, by the way, is not Led Zeppelin IV. I don't care what anybody says, but Pink Floyd, though, well, one of the first records I owned was the single of Another Brick in the Wall Part Two, with one of my turns on the B-side. Standard orange-yellow gradient Columbia label. Not the fancy custom job with the font face from the wall. But I loved that song. For most of my life, I didn't actively listen to any other Pink Floyd, except, well, the other two parts of Another Brick in the Wall. Sure, I heard the usual radio stuff. Money, Wish You Were Here, a few others from the wall and Dark Side of the Moon, but uh, it didn't do anything for me. In fact, I found Pink Floyd's music dreary and depressing. Going back to Andrew and me practicing Stairway, one time when I was over at his house, he popped in a Pink Floyd CD, Relics, and there was one track on it that piqued my interest, the psychedelic instrumental Interstellar Overdrive. Whoa, what is this brilliance? Did Andrew change the CD when I wasn't looking? No way in hell is this wonder from Pink Floyd, uh-uh. But, yeah, apparently it was. Andrew told me it's from their first album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, from 1967. 
based just on that song. Well, not, it's not really a song. It doesn't have vocals, but based on that track, <laughs> I needed a copy of that album. Problem was, I didn't have a driver's license yet, so it wasn't terribly easy for me to get to Crow's Nest to get the CD. I think one time when my brother was going to be going to Crow's Nest, I gave him 20 bucks and told him to get me a copy. And then when I listened to it, wow, what is this wonderful music? So exciting and experimental, so trippy. Now, this is not dreary or depressing at all. And in the 30 years since, I've been wondering why on earth people do not acknowledge this Pink Floyd. One thing that I kept thinking, the album reminded me of the Monkees' Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones limited album from that same year, released November 6th. That's three months and one day later than Pink Floyd's debut. A few of the tracks off that Monkees album gave me my introduction to psychedelic music, specifically with the song Daily Nightly. I first heard that song when watching their TV show on Nickelodeon. On the TV show, as that song faded out, Mickey looked into the camera and said, Psychedelic? That's when I first knew what was meant by that counterculture term. To me, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn was Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited, but with a lot more LSD. By the way, both of those album titles are a mouthful, so from now to the end of this installment of Music for Schnooks, I will refer to them simply as Piper and Pisces, respectively. Now, I'm going to go track by track through the album I was most familiar with, Pisces. It opens with Salesman, a great Mike Nesmith-sung opener that sounds a bit like the Beatles' She's a Woman, with the very thinly-veiled lyrics about a drug dealer. Next is She Hangs Out, typical California sunshine pop sung by typical Californian like um, Davy Jones, who's uh, actually from Manchester, England. Anyway, it was written by bubblegum producer Jeff Berry. Third track is an all-time Monkees classic, The Door Into Summer, also sung by Nesmith, who gets yet another lead vocal on the next track with Man and Wild's Love Is Only Sleeping, with the album's first real hint of psychedelia and a hella contagious guitar riff. I think I might have mentioned it in a previous episode, but back in the days when the main online discussion forums were on Usenet, remember the news groups? <laughs> My wife once commented about how Love is Only Sleeping is quite a sexy song, but she was completely slammed by Monkees fans who truly believed that they were this sweet, innocent quartet that lived in a beach house, just like on the TV show. The next song is by another famous songwriter, but a not-yet-famous Harry Nilsson, with a song called Cuddly Toy a vaudeville-style number sung by Davy Jones, with lyrics supposedly about, well, a a gangbang. Side 2 closes with a song from the classic monkey songwriting team of Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, Words, with Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork trading vocals on a song that was inspired by a thank-you card that a fan sent them after joining them for a hayride, Uh, the them being Boyce and Hart, not Dolenz and Tork, by the way. Now, this version of Words was actually a remake. The band had recorded another version the previous year and lip-synced it on the TV show, but that version remained unreleased on an audio medium until 1990. Even then, that version was a slightly different version, so technically the one that's in the TV show still has not seen an audio release. But anyway, flip the record, or tape, over, 
And Davy Jones kicks off side two with a bossa nova song he co-wrote called Hard to Believe. I'm among many fans who skip that track, but let's be honest here. Davy sang the hell out of it, and it is worth a listen. Next is a typical Nesmith country track, What Am I Doing Hanging Round? After that, we get to hear Peter Tork again, but this time he recites the poem Peter Percival Patterson's Pet Pig Porky, immediately followed by the classic hit Pleasant Valley Sunday, written by the brilliant Goffin and King. We hear the album's first Nesmith penned song next, Daily Nightly, and let me just say this. They should have cross-faded Pleasant Valley Sunday into it. Here, let me demonstrate. There's a mellow, loungy tune from Nesmith called Don't Call On Me, a song he co-wrote several years earlier as an experiment in major seventh chords. The album closes with another Goffin and King tune, Star Collector, a rocker that, much like Pleasant Valley Sunday, ends with a psychedelic breakdown. I got Pisces on cassette in the summer of 1987, the first time I ever went to Crow's Nest. I went specifically to get Headquarters, the Monkees' third album, but I had enough money to buy a second tape, so I chose Pisces because it had Daily Nightly, which is what I suspected was that little psychedelic tune that I heard on the TV show, and of course I was correct. What more can I say, but I loved Pisces, and to this day it's one of my favorite albums of all time. Even though the album was released in November, to me, it's all about summer. Probably because I bought it and listened to it like crazy on a hot summer day. It especially sounds good over the hum of a central air conditioner. But there's another album from 1967 that is also summer to me. And it's another fourth album from another California band. This summer album that was actually released on February 6th is Younger Than Yesterday by The Birds. For me, it's summer because, well, I bought it in the summer of 1996, either at Best Buy or Crow's Nest. I don't remember for sure, but I'm kind of leaning toward Best Buy on this one. I had been curious about the album for a while because I really enjoyed the Birds' first and third albums, Mr. Tambourine Man and Fifth Dimension, respectively. I talked before on this podcast in an earlier episode uh, about how I worked on the college's football team. Well, when I was a freshman... There were a couple of players, the Sievert twins, who were seniors. One played defense, one played offense, but that doesn't matter here. But the Sieverts and I shared a lot of musical interests. In fact, Scott gave me his senior paper about the Beatles and Transcendental Meditation so I can give him some feedback on it. His twin brother Ken, dead ringer for Ray Manzarek. I believe it was Ken who actually told me about Younger Than Yesterday, because I told him how much I loved Fifth Dimension. He said, well... Younger Than Yesterday is way better than Fifth Dimension. Huh. I kept that in mind for almost four years. The truth is, it was hard to find on CD at the time. It was only available in a very limited pressing for some reason. But the Birds albums were reissued with bonus tracks in 1996, and Younger Than Yesterday was the first one that I bought. The title was a play on the refrain of the song, My Back Pages a Bob Dylan tune that was covered on the album, and by the way, I happen to be recording this segment on Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. 
Coincidence? Uh, yes, it was. I totally didn't intend that. But forget that for now. Let's talk about uh, Younger Than Yesterday, because it's an interesting album to listen to if you are familiar with the Birds' bigger hits and earlier material. Younger Than Yesterday is most definitely a different sound, a different vibe, yet at the same time, it still sounds like the classic Birds, albeit without Gene Clark, who developed a fear of flying and refused to fly for touring and stuff, so fellow bird Jim McWynn told him, well, if you want to be a bird, you have to fly. I think one thing that gives the album a different feel is that it is on this album that bassist Chris Hillman blossomed as a songwriter. Have you seen her face, Time Between, Thoughts and Words, The Girl with No Name, all excellent songs, were written solely by Hillman, and the album's opener, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, was co-written by Hillman and uh, Jim McGuinn. At first, I was going to say that that's more songs than even Jim McGuinn wrote on the album, but as I look at the previous albums, he wrote surprisingly few of the songs on each of those LPs as well. I might as well go through this one track by track, too. Uh, I already talked about the album opener. Um, Chris Hillman denied for years that So I Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star was a dig at the monkeys until he finally admitted it in the 90s on VH1's My Generation, hosted by Peter Noon. The song also has some nice horn playing by South African jazz pioneer Hugh Masekela. Have You Seen Her Face is next, the first bird song with Chris Hillman all by himself in the songwriting credits. Very catchy song. Loved it from the first time I heard it. Uh, speaking of which, if you heard the previous episode, uh, you heard uh, Lisa and my friend Ferg and me talk about our experiences at Beetlefest, including a guy that I referred to as Brian from New York. Well, I remember between songs during a jam session once, uh, Brian had his Rickenbacker 12 string, so I figured, hmm, let's see if he wants to do a Birds song. So I said, hey, Brian, how about this one? And I, on my cheap Fender, I played uh, the opening riff from Have You Seen Her Face? And he said, you actually know that song? <laughs> anyway, let's uh, move on, shall we? Uh, the next song is called CTA 102, and it's a bouncy little number inspired by the discovery of a quasar by that name back in the early 60s. I like to think of this song as a sequel to uh, Mr. Spaceman that was on the Bird's uh, Fifth Dimension album. With its space theme, the song has Jim McWynn's name all over it. He's always been a big fan of the cosmos. Steve Levitt, who's a legendary instructor over at the Old Town School of Folk Music here in Chicago, he told me that there was a website on which people were attempting to decode the gibberish at the end of the song, but sadly, I couldn't find that site. He also explained how the takeoff sound near the end was achieved by strumming the strings of a piano then slamming down the piano lid to simulate the booming liftoff. Now, the song after that is one of my very favorites in the Birds catalog, Renaissance Fair, co-written by McGuinn and David Crosby. When you listen to the song, you might think it's an acid trip, especially with its refrain of, I think that maybe I'm dreaming. The lyrics are indeed very trippy, but believe it or not, the song has nothing to do with drugs. It was inspired by a visit that David Crosby paid to the Renaissance Pleasure Fair of Southern California. Such a great song, but tragically also such a short song, not even two minutes. Chris Hillman comes up again with Time Between, a very catchy and bouncy tune with a bit of a country vibe to it. And Side One closes with a loungy, croony song called Everybody's Been Burned. 
sung by its composer David Crosby, with a jazzy voice that suits him very well. Chris Hillman launches side two with thoughts and words, with a little hint of audio psychedelia in the form of backwards guitar, which also occurs on the next track, David Crosby's Mind Gardens. Now, a lot of people hate Mind Gardens, including other members of the Birds, but it's actually one of my favorites on the album. Very trippy lyrics and some backwards Rickenbacker 370-12 string. How can you go wrong? The way that David Crosby sang the song kind of makes me think of the album Song Cycle by Van Dyke Parks, an album that, quite frankly, I don't like at all and don't understand why people say it's so brilliant. It's a freaking mess. One line, bread ran, ran down to few wretched but Van Dyke Parks' singing style throughout that album sounds a lot how David Crosby sounded on Mind Gardens. Once upon a time There was a garden Now in 1995, Van Dyke Parks included his email address in the liner notes of Orange Crate Art, the album he recorded with Brian Wilson. Well, after I heard Mind Gardens, I emailed Van Dyke Parks at that address, and I asked him if Mind Gardens had any influence on Song Cycle. After all, Van Dyke Parks had actually played, not only on Younger Than Yesterday, but also the Bird's previous album, Fifth Dimension. And he responded, uh, tragically in all caps, No, Mind Gardens was not an influence! Speaking of Van Dyke Parks playing on Younger Than Yesterday, the next song is the song that he actually played organ on, a cover of Bob Dylan's My Back Pages. Very formulaic track by the Birds, nothing that anybody who's ever heard the Birds hadn't heard before, basically taking a Bob Dylan song and giving it a little rock and roll beat to it. Nothing unusual. But next is Chris Hillman's final song on the album, The Girl With No Name, Another rocker with a country vibe and quite enjoyable despite my general dislike of country music. The album closes with McGuinn and Crosby's Why, uh, although David Crosby insists he wrote it entirely by himself. The song is actually a remake of the B-side of Eight Miles High from the prior year. You keep saying no to her Since she was a baby You keep saying no to her I know that most Birds fans would want to have me deported for saying this, but I actually prefer the remake. It has a much cleaner sound, and to me it sounds better in the key of E than the original sounded in the key of D. Overall, it's a much crisper production. Keep saying no to her I loved Younger Than Yesterday instantly upon hearing it. What was especially cool is that the CD had a handful of great bonus tracks, but uh, I'm not going to get into those now. Instead, I just want to focus on the main proper album itself. Now, remember that I said Piper kind of had a similar vibe to me as Pisces. Well, I felt the same way about Younger Than Yesterday. It shared so much of the vibe that Pisces had. The three albums sound very different from each other, yet somehow, they go together very well. It only hit me when I was prepping this episode that the stereo mixes of these albums all have something in common. The drums are completely panned to the right, which I actually don't like. I like the drums to be centered. You pan them all the way to one side, it throws off the balance of the music. 
But I did find it interesting that all three of those albums had that in common. Three different albums, recorded under three different producers, on two different continents. Interestingly, I do hear a lot of monkeys vibe. Hmm, been using that word vibe a lot in this segment uh, on the Younger Than Yesterday album. Curiously, though, the monkeys like sound I get from it is actually much closer to that of the monkeys' second album, More of the Monkeys, than the fourth album, Pisces. Chris Hillman's songs in particular remind me especially of some of the songs Mike Nesmith wrote. But drawing parallels between Younger Than Yesterday and Pisces? Easy. Mind Gardens and Daily Nightly have a similar feel, especially in the trippy lyrics, and they're both in the key of A. The killing cold could not get in But when the sun came Everybody's Been Burned is quite analogous to Don't Call On Me. Both have themes of rejection. The former about being rejected, the latter about being the rejector, and both have a mellow sound with kind of croony vocals. Everybody has been burned before. Everybody knows. CTA 102, easy. That could be mashed up with Star Collector. They're both very spacey songs in terms of sound. Admittedly, Star Collector isn't about that kind of star, but instead about a groupie hounding celebrities for autographs. But the sounds and rhythm of Star Collector definitely have the same feel of CTA 102. We just want to let you know that we're ready for to go out into the universe. We don't care. Time Between, with its up-tempo country feel, definitely calls to mind what am I doing hanging around. Arguably, you could also say the same thing about the girl with no name. One day she came along, didn't know her name. My friend said to me, watch out for the game. Just a loudmouth Yankee, I went down to Mexico. I didn't have much time to spend about a week or so. And the song Why, the final song on Younger Than Yesterday, Well, I equate that with words on Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones. 
Both of them are remakes of songs that the groups had recorded earlier, and they both start with W. So there you go. And of course, the beautiful thing, the opening song, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, is basically trashing the monkeys. In Chris Hillman's defense, though, at the time, for all the world knew, the monkeys were indeed a manufactured band that didn't play instruments on their records. And by the way, I think that's a much better explanation than the usual, they didn't play their own instruments. When I first heard it explained that way, I wondered what the big deal was. So they played the instruments the studio gave them. They played somebody else's instruments. Who cares? Uh, I didn't know that people were saying they didn't play instruments, period. And even then, that wasn't entirely true, because both Mike and Peter played on a couple of tracks in the first couple of albums before uh, they all started playing instruments on their third album, of course. But other than that, yeah, the Wrecking Crew, the First Call Gang, the Click, whatever you want to call them, provided the backing tracks. Seems to me there was another famous California band whose first release had a backing track provided by the Wrecking Crew, except for a guitar provided by someone in the band. Oh, what was that band again? Oh, shoot, it's right at the tip of my tongue. Oh! The Birds! who weren't allowed to play instruments on their album unless the first single was a hit, which it was. Mr. Tambourine Man went to number one. But let's get back to that Pink Floyd debut album. Now, I'm not going to go track by track for that album because, well, so many of them have such a similar vibe that, to be honest, my descriptions of many of them would sound so similar. I can tell you, though, that the album could not have had a better opener than Astronomy Domine, a song that became a staple at Pink Floyd concerts for many years. It really sets the mood for the entire album. I love Lucifer Sam for its catchy guitar riff and lyrics. Things get mellow with Matilda Mother and its lead vocal by Rick Wright. It's one of those songs that can't possibly have been written outside of England. The bluesy jam Pow R Talk H, credited to all four members of the band, is quite attention-grabbing with its strange vocals and almost predicts some of Roger Waters' several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a Pict on the band's Amagama album. My favorite track on the album is the psychedelic jam Interstellar Overdrive, which kicks off side two in the British version of the album. Um, I've seen the lineup for the American version of Piper. Oh my goodness, the United States got ripped off back in 1967. Now, the next song, interestingly, The Gnome, a very, very mellow, straightforward little story song, another one whose lyrics could not possibly have been written outside of the UK. Now, I thought it was very odd that The Gnome would come immediately after this big psychedelic explosion of interstellar overdrive, but after a little bit of thought, I'm thinking that it really makes a lot of sense, because interstellar overdrive is basically an acid trip. The Gnome is the come down. That's how I see it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I want to tell you a story about a little man, if I can. A gnome named Grimble Crumble, and little gnomes stay in their homes. The album closes with a song called Bike, and it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple, but there is a little bit of a uh, psychedelic coda to it. Uh, I'm wondering if that's supposed to represent a acid flashback. And uh, the very end of it, now here's something I'm going to bring up right now. I'm going to talk about how this makes me think about Pisces by the Monkees. The very end of Bike has a weird sound that kind of repeats over and over. Here, here let's listen to it. Of course, when I first heard that, I thought, hmm, was Sid Barrett trying to do the inner groove from the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album? But then I realized he wouldn't have heard it yet, because Pink Floyd finished the sessions for Piper before Pepper was released. Piper, Pepper, Pepper, Piper. But I did notice that it has kind of a similar feel and sound to the end of the Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones limited album. Listen to this. Not quite the same, but it has kind of a similar vibe. And you know what else has kind of a crossover vibe here? Let's listen to a little snatch of The Monkey's Love is Only Sleeping. And now let's listen to a little bit of Lucifer Sam by Pink Floyd. See, right there, I can. There's just so much similarity that it's it just stands out for me so much. I can't draw very terribly specific parallels to the rest of Pisces to the rest of Piper. Except that Interstellar Overdrive, to me, is basically kind of like an extended, overdone version of Daily Nightly. So I talked about how Younger Than Yesterday and Pisces kind of parallel each other, and how Pisces and Piper parallel each other. But what about Piper and Younger Than Yesterday? Admittedly, even though I feel that those three albums can be listened to back-to-back and you'll feel a lot of the same vibe... There aren't a heck of a lot of parallels between Piper and Younger Than Yesterday, but there is one that I did notice, and to explain that, I'm going to give you a little bit of a music theory lesson. And to help me with that music theory lesson, I have here that cheapo Stratocaster I mentioned before right here that I got as a high school graduation present in 1992. So, yeah, basically what I'm going at is a friend of mine years ago pointed out that something that he really liked about what Sid Barrett would do was he would use a lot of descending half-steps. And here's where the music theory comes in. What is a half-step? Basically, in Western music, not like Texas music, I mean like Western Hemisphere music, you have 12 notes. You have A, A A-sharp or B-flat, B, C, C C-sharp or D-flat, D, D D-sharp or E-flat, E, F, and then F-sharp or G-flat, 
and then G, and then G sharp or A flat. So the reason that I chose to use a guitar for this is that every single fret represents a half step. So it's pretty easy to demonstrate that way. Now, what Peter was talking about and how Sid Barrett was using descending half steps, that is all over Piper. Like in Astronomy Domine, you have this thing going on. There's your half step right there, this. Just basically moving his fingers a little bit. Half step. And then even the melody. Lime and limpid green, the second scene, a fight between the blue you once knew. How that melody just drops down a little bit. And with Lucifer Sam, you have those things going on, which is descending half steps, you know? C sharp, C, B. The next note is an A. Which B to A is a whole step, but still the others, C sharp, C, B. Actually, this would probably be a D flat, C, B. I'm not going to get into why you would call that a D flat at that particular instance. That's a, a story for another occasion, which means that this note would have to be called a G flat because you don't want to mix sharps and flats in your nomenclature. <laughs> anyway, so you have that going on with uh, Lucifer Sam and Interstellar Overdrive. You have this. All of those are half steps. Another half step. So, more half steps descending. Uh, having said that, though, uh, people who listen to this podcast regularly might remember that I talked about how supposedly Sid Barrett got that riff from Little Red Book as performed by Love, which uh, the melody was something like this. Um. And I found it interesting that he brought that up because he brought that up when we were listening to Heroes and Villains by the Beach Boys once which is a uh, song that came from that famous Smile album that Brian Wilson did not finish when it was supposed to be finished originally. And my friend is a major Smile buff. If he could only listen to one collection of music for the rest of his life, he would easily pick the stuff done during that Smile era. But he talked about how Heroes and Villains has that descending half-step thing. Like, I've been in this town so long that back in the city I've been taken for lost and gone and unknown for a long, long time. Now, not nearly as many half steps as, say, Sid Barrett would use, but still they're descending half steps like this. Half steps descending. Those last two notes right there. Half steps. Half steps. Ooh, my headphones are getting in the way of the string. Half steps. Okay, whole st there are a lot of whole steps in there, too. That's about half and half, whole and half, <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying there. But having said that, those descending half steps also show up in Thoughts and Words by the Birds. Piper's closing tracks, we also have those descending half steps. 
the descending half steps are there in bike. Not quite as prevalent, but they're there. Like you have this, I'll give you anything, everything, if you want things, or however that goes. Oh, it's too bad that Circle Sky wasn't on Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones, because the main riffs of that song are all descending chords in half steps, because they go like this. Now, in these three albums from 1967, it's not just the musical parallels that they share, but there's also one big thing that these three albums have in common. Before too long, all three of those groups, The Birds, The Monkees, and Pink Floyd, would lose one of their founding members. The Birds' next album, The Notorious Bird Brothers, which I believe is most Birds fans' favorite album, but for me, it's it's okay, but uh, it, I don't know. There's something about it that I just, I just can't latch on to. There's some really good songs on it, like Wasn't Born to Follow, very classic, great opener with Artificial Energy, but some of the other songs are just a little bit too jazzy for what the Birds should be doing. But during the sessions for the Notorious Bird Brothers, David Crosby was kicked out of the band. Why was he kicked out? Well, in Jacob Dylan's recent documentary, Echoes in the Canyon, which I do not like, by the way, I might be in a minority here, but I think it was a very poorly done documentary. But David Crosby was interviewed for that documentary, and he said something to the effect of, I'm going to tell you the real reason I was kicked out of the birds. I got kicked out of the birds because I was an asshole. Peter Tork also would only record one more album with the Monkees. Yeah, after the Birds, the Bees, and the Monkees, there was still the movie Head and its accompanying soundtrack album, but there are only a handful of actual songs in that album, and plus, Peter's songs were recorded during the sessions for the Birds, the Bees, and the Monkees, so I don't really count that, but Peter Tork, very exhausted from everything he had to do, he bought out the rest of his contract and left the Monkees. What about Pink Floyd, though? Well... Sid Barrett was, well, as much as I praise Sid Barrett's creativity on the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, and how exciting he made the band sound, and how Roger Waters tended to change that sound later on to something very dreary and depressing, well, Sid Barrett proved to be a liability. He was constantly doing drugs. By the way, anybody who doesn't think that LSD is dangerous, I present to you Sid Barrett. He practically melted his brain with that stuff and never recovered. His behavior was becoming erratic, and by the time Pink Floyd started working on their next album, A Saucer Full of Secrets, he didn't have much material. He didn't recognize old friends. It was just becoming very strange. On TV appearances, he would behave very strangely. Sometimes he wouldn't even mime to his performances. That's why Pink Floyd brought in David Gilmore. I believe Jug Band Blues was Sid Barrett's only contribution to A Saucer Full of Secrets. Now, it seems to me that all of Pink Floyd's music after A Saucer Full of Secrets was somehow about Sid himself, especially Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall. They had Sid Barrett in mind when they recorded those albums. Wish you were here. Who was the you? That was absolutely Sid Barrett. Part of me wants to think, well, you guys miss him so much, well, you kicked him out. But on the other hand, they had to. They had no choice. They had to kick him out before he destroyed the band along with himself. He did have enough of his musical wits and talents to do two solo albums, at least one of which I think was produced by David Gilmour. But then he basically exiled himself from the world and didn't want to talk rock and roll ever again. 
story I heard is that sometime in the 70s or 80s, Sid actually consented to an interview about his Pink Floyd days. But in the middle of the interview, he told the interviewer, I'm sorry, this is just too painful. And he ended the interview right there. But still, for that brief moment when Sid Barrett was a reliable, creative force in Pink Floyd, they had some pretty dynamite stuff. And listen to The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, and Jones Limited, and Younger Than Yesterday, assuming they can have three backs, back to back to back, any order, doesn't matter, and tell me you don't see that same similarity, and that you don't get excited about summer. One thing worth mentioning is that the Pisces album is among the first in pop music to use a synthesizer. That's right, the Monkees even had that before the Beatles did, by almost two years. Not even Pink Floyd had one for Piper. All the keyboard sounds came from Rick Wright's Farfisa. Farfisa? Farfisa? I never knew how to say that name. But <laughs> anyway, the aural psychedelia on that album comes from other sources like tape tricks and things that engineers probably did over at uh, EMI Studios. And by the way, the producer on that album was, I believe, Norman Smith, who uh, worked with the Beatles uh, quite a lot, too. But yeah, Mickey Dolenz was one of the first people to have a Moog synthesizer. And yes, it's pronounced Moog, not Moog. I believe it's a German name. Mickey played it on Daily Nightly, and Paul Beaver played it on Star Collector. And the difference between the two is night and day. It was clear that Paul Beaver knew what he was doing, and uh, he was obviously a very accomplished keyboardist just from listening to that. But Mickey's synth parts in Daily Nightly, they were all over the place and more for effect than actual music. Uh, Peter Tork actually preferred Mickey's playing over Paul Beaver's playing because of how Mickey was just kind of noodling around with it, experimenting. And by the way, a Moog would also be used on the Bird's next album, The Notorious Bird Brothers. But uh, that, that's enough music for now. Well, you can never have enough music, but uh, this chapter has to end sometime, right? I mean, God knows I'd like to end it sooner than the last episode ended. Anyway, I, that's, that's it. That's chapter 33. So um, first off, as usual, I thank my wife, Lisa, for her support, for her feedback, for her suggestions. And a huge thanks to Donna Carter for answering my questions about the Singing Johnson family. As for how you can reach me, well, there's email. You can email me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. My Twitter and Instagram handle are schnookpodcast.com. And uh, I try to use Instagram. I really do. I just don't like it, but, I'll, but I try. You can follow the uh, podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash schnookpodcast, or just look for Autobiography of a Schnook in the Facebook search engine. And uh, by the way, I'm gradually uploading episodes to YouTube. Just search for Autobiography of a Schnook. I'm only up to about episode five so far at the time of this recording, but I'm gradually putting everything up there. Uh, it's just the audio with the, uh, with the uh, podcast logo behind it. But where possible, I'm also dropping in the appropriate pictures at the right moments. Uh, it's a challenge, but hey, who am I to turn down a challenge? But all the podcast experts say, put it on YouTube, too, for maximum exposure. Okay. Uh, the big problem is that uh, a lot of times I use snippets of uh, other songs for commentary, and YouTube oftentimes auto-flags it, but I've been able to uh, contest those uh, auto-silences and auto 
blockages and things successfully. But speaking of which, um, I do use my own music for the opening and closing themes and for segment transitions, but there may be some music and sounds in the episode that are not my own. Those sounds and pieces of music are used for commentary and review. They are the properties of their individual copyright holders, and I intend no infringement. Autobiography of a Schnook is available on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and many other podcast providers. If your favorite podcast supplier does not carry this podcast, hey, let me know and I'll do what I can for you. And by the way, I tried getting onto SoundCloud. That's not going to happen, at least not at this point. So sorry, SoundCloud uh, people. Now, I don't know whether I should be asking for you to leave a review of Autobiography of a Schnook on Apple Podcasts or iTunes because... Uh, There's this big debate over whether or not that actually helps the podcast or does nothing to the podcast, and people are tired of hearing podcasters ask for reviews. So, hey, leave a review. Don't leave a review. It's a free country, at least where I am. (laughs) Uh, If you really, really, really want to hear my voice between now and the next episode, you can check out Pie Factory Podcast, especially if you're into classic arcade video games. But most importantly, what I want you to really walk away with is just believing that the good goes around. At the very least, one good thing going around is that after this episode is done, it'll be the longest interval between now and the next time you hear me. So there you go. All the best, my friends. 